This is really an exciting passage in many ways. It draws together everything we've been looking at in chapters 10 through 14 and, and brings it to this beautiful, beautiful conclusion. And really the subject of it and the, the, the message title is Salvation Under the Magnifying Glass. It's just a close-up look from uh, the eyes of Scripture, the truth of our salvation, the clarity of the gospel, and we want to make a profound noise about the glory of the gospel and of Christ and all of this. So, you know, I've often said this is the single most important question any human being could ever ask and answer. How is a man saved? And that's what's before us tonight in the text. Uh, there was confusion back in that day, and there's confusion in the world today. And so uh, we want to do all we can to bring clarity to that and just uh, let the Word of God speak in a powerful way. This is literally called the Council at Jerusalem by historians and biblical theologians. This is the very first time the leaders of the church came together and to clarify some of the teachings and truth of the Scripture. So let's jump in and read the first five verses in uh, and I'm going to refer to kind of where we're at in all of this as we make our way through it, so just to kind of give you some landmarks. Uh, what is unfolding tonight is at the end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. So they've been out, they've done their stuff, and they're coming back to Antioch, and these events unfold. And the text says, beginning in verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, you can only imagine what went on with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy. That's mega joy. So Trump wasn't the first guy to use this word mega. It's a biblical word. Great joy. So hang on there. We're going to see it. So uh, uh, brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, and note that word believers, belonged to the party of Pharisees, rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So just quickly, what's going on is some men from uh, the church in Jerusalem came to Antioch, and they stayed down because Jerusalem was higher, and they began to sow this teaching among the Gentiles and, and some Jews in Antioch about the fact that you needed to become almost a Jew before you could be a follower of Jesus. So you had to go back and literally do what Gentiles used to have to do to join Judaism. You had to be circumcised and you had to follow the law of Moses. And, and that's made evident verse, uh, not only in verse 1 but also in verse 5. So we see it's circumcision and obey the law of Moses. Those were the things that they were uh, uh, trying to promote among the believers in Antioch. It says some of these were believers, and, and you know, I really wrestled with that. And the best explanation I've come up with it was in a commentary. It actually said, uh, since God 
Only God knows the human heart. It's impossible to make a blanket statement regarding the eternal destiny of this group who are called believers here. Probably some were sincere believers in the resurrection of Christ and of His claim to be Messiah, though confused about the essence of the gospel, about law and faith. So what we're going to settle in on is try to understand that unique and powerful difference that people today even still struggle with. So that's where we're headed. As I've said already, uh, what they're promoting is nothing more than has always been promoted in Judaism when a Gentile sought to become a follower of Judaism. So Paul and Barnabas, as you can well imagine, <laughs> challenged this with all kinds of uh, vigor. It says they, they uh, had dissension, no small dissension and debate with them. There was dispute, there was discussion and dialogue, and it couldn't be resolved, so they uh, suggested, let's go to Jerusalem and let the elders and the apostles sort this out. And it's such a wise, wise decision, because I don't know of a more significant issue before the church in this day than how is a man saved. It's important to us, it was important to them. And so anyway, that's what's unfolding before us, so this delegation went down, uh, there was a huge difference between their viewpoints and between the truth of the gospel, as we will see it unfolded in the passage, and, and what these, uh, these former Jewish people were trying to uh, instill into the church and the understanding of believers in Antioch. So what was in view here is the essence of the gospel. And if this had not been resolved, you can only imagine what would have happened to the uh, dissension and divisiveness that could have occurred between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch and all churches uh, beyond that. So what we see here is then uh, it kind of uh, wraps up this little section with Paul and Barnabas heading to Jerusalem. They uh, set out uh, on their way. They uh, gave reports of what God had done through them. And notice, it's not what they did. It's what God, say that with me, it's what God did through them. We're going to see this over and over and over again in this text. And it is a testimony to the truth of the power of God working in and through them to bring people to faith. And so on their way to Antioch and Syria and uh, in, um, um, what was the other place? Go back and look at the text. Syria and... Uh, can't find it, Phoenicia. They, they were testifying to everything that God did, uh, and there was great joy among these people with all this. And uh, they were obviously proclaiming the gospel as they knew it to be, as, as Paul had been led to understand it, as Barnabas had, as from their interactions with the uh, believers in Jerusalem. Now this was being tested. So they went down there, uh, and they shared all this, and then they eventually got to Jerusalem, and they shared again there all that God had done through them, and there was great joy and celebration there. Uh, and so that's kind of the background of everything that leads up to this council. And the council unfolds, and we're going to look at three aspects of it. The first is Peter's testimony about what God did through him. And then we're going to secondly see uh, Peter talk about the law and the Jew. And then thirdly, we're going to see what James steps in and says that all of this was in, accordance, was in accord with the prophets from the past. And so I want you to get this big picture. The working of God through Peter 
to bring Gentiles to faith. And, and we've, we've seen that unfold and, uh, as, as Josh and Jason preached to us the passages in, in Acts 10 and in Acts 11. And now uh, Peter, uh, excuse me, uh, Paul and Barnabas went out and they've seen the same kind of working of God that Peter saw in his, uh, his times as they are recorded in 10 and 11. So that is the background of this helping us to understand the reality and truth of the gospel. So let's jump over to chapter, uh, well, same chapter, verses 6 through 12. And it says there, and we're going to look now at Peter's first testimony after there was some debate and discussion among these people. It says there, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and this is where Peter takes control, and he's going to tell them what God has been doing. And what I want you to listen to is how many times Peter says, God did this, God did that, God made evidence of this in this, this working through my life. And so Peter says, after much debate, he stood up, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he had did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So what we're seeing unfolding here is his testimony about what transpired through his ministry after he left Joppa, if you remember, uh, God came and called him through some men sent from uh, uh, the uh, uh, centurion in Caesarea to come down and share the gospel. So that's the background of this passage, and Peter's going to refer to us and tell us all that God did. Notice, uh, remember, Peter was a leading apostle of that day. He had, he had amazing credentials he was one of the apostles. He was the leader of the apostles on earth when Jesus was here doing his earthly ministry. And then after Jesus' resurrection, he went out and proclaimed the gospel to Jews, many Jews, as well as uh, the opening of the door to the Gentiles. And he was involved in all of that. And, and for that reason, I, I really think if you go back to Matthew where uh, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And, and remember what, uh, what uh, Peter said? You're... You are the Messiah. And Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. And I really think this is one of the fulfillments of that because he used Peter through his empowering and through his work to reveal the truth and the power of the gospel. So listen as we move on. It's just dominant and powerful working of God through all this. So what we see here is not Peter talking about himself and his work, but simply what God did, what God had done through him, and what God taught him through these things. Literally, this is what God gave him as he went to the house of Cornelius the centurion. And this is what we see revealed to in this passage. In the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Wasn't Peter's initiative? You remember the account that Jason revealed? No, it, yeah, I don't remember which one of you guys preached it, but literally the sheet came down. It might have been you, Josh, and, and, and God freed Peter to go and follow these men that came 
from Cornelius the, the centurion. And so uh, we see all that unfolding. It was God's initiative that even gave him uh, the unction from God to go because he, you know, first objection when he got there is, I shouldn't be in the house of Gentiles. And we see him moving under the power of God. Now listen, in the early days, God made a choice among you. God was at work. He made a choice to use me that by my mouth they would hear. It was God's initiative. It was God's choice. It was God's will. In, in Caesarea, all these events that unfold that are described here in verse 8, God who knows the heart, he bore witness to them. He gave them the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, just as he did to us, it was all a doing and working of God. And if you remember how all this unfolded in chapter 10, he went to the centurion's house, to, to Cornelius' house, this Gentile. And, and from there, uh, after he went back to Jerusalem, they kind of cornered him. And they said, what are you doing in the house of a, of, of a Gentile? And Peter defends himself and then explains to them what God had done. And by verse 18 of chapter 11, they're all at peace with that, agreeing at that point in time. And Peter looks back to that. And, and remember, this is about 10 years before this event. And, and Peter's looking back at them. And this has all been settled. Why are we rehashing this? God has been doing all of this. God poured out His Spirit. God made the gospel known. And literally, if you look at the passage closely... The Spirit falls them before, before Peter even gets to the gospel. God knew their hearts in his sovereignty and his omniscience, and he brought them into the kingdom and baptized them with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues exactly in the same way that the apostles had on the day of Pentecost. And what God did was show the church that Gentiles are every bit as welcome in God's kingdom as the Jews were. And this is the power of the gospel. It's the same gospel that brings Jews. We'll see that even more in a bit that brought these Gentiles. They were accepted into the kingdom by faith alone. Uh, and remember the order again. They were believers. They were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then Peter took them based on all out and baptized them in a physical way as we do with new believers. All that transpired in the text from the past. All of this was God's working. And circumcision and law-keeping had nothing to do with it. Nothing. So very simply, kind of summing up things here, Paul profoundly, simply, and clearly, once and for all, before all of us, clear, clearly states and, and demonstrates the reality of the gospel to us. It was God drawing people to himself. Guess what? He's still doing that today. He's drawing people to himself. We're the instruments. We can be involved in that. We can share and love and pray for them. But it's God bringing people to himself in the very same way. And it's all by believing faith. God saw that. He understood that. So let me just read this little paragraph to you. This is the first part of Peter's message. He shared with them from his own experience the great lessons God had taught him. It was God's choice. It was God who knew the heart. It was God who had acknowledged the believing faith by the giving to them of the Spirit. It was God who purified their hearts by faith. All of it had been accomplished nearly 10 years before these events in Cornelius' house. They'd been led by God. Peter had to that place. And because of God already working there and using Peter, they came to faith and it was a powerful demonstration that God welcomes all men through the gospel into his kingdom. So, what we conclude from this, it's not the works of law-keeping 
or of circumcision or any other good deeds that bring people to Jesus Christ. It is humble faith recognizing our sinful need for deliverance from our sin. It's that simple. It's that profound. But it's also that confusing to many, many people that are filled with pride and believe somehow or another they can manipulate God by what they do. Every other religion in the world literally tries to manipulate God into gaining his favor through their works, through their worship, through their acts of whatever. The gospel is far simpler than that. We come by believing faith in our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, and place our trust as the Spirit leads, guides, and God draws into believing the sufficiency and power of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. That is the gospel. But we're not done here. We need to go on and look at the law and how it all relates to that. So now, Peter goes on in verse 10. He says, now therefore, listen so carefully to this. (laughs) This is so, so profound. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the next, on the necks of disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That is a powerful statement. What Paul has just done is gutted the law as any basis of salvation. He said what? We can't keep the law and our fathers can't keep the law. We cannot be saved by law-keeping. He goes on to build this a bit more. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So it is so powerful. Do not miss this description of the powerlessness of the law to deliver anyone from sin. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his 18-volume uh, commentary on the book of Romans, this is book one. <laughs> Can you imagine 18 volumes on the book of Romans? says this. And I read this, and it was just, well, this is a life-changing statement, I believe. He says this. He says, with reverence, we must, of course, ask God why Why he didn't just bring Jesus after Adam and Eve sinned? Why did we have to wait 1,500 years for Jesus to come? And he said, we should ask that question with reverence. And I agree. He says, why the delay? Why the long interval between the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and the coming of the Son of God for redemption and for salvation He's got two answers I want to share with you today. This is the first one. First, he says, this is God's way of of revealing the depth of sin. God's way of showing mankind and teaching us what sin really is, what a terrible thing it is, that it is not merely some light act of disobedience or some failure, but that it is really that it is really a profound disease of the soul of man. And I'm going to tell you this as clearly and as profoundly as I can. Until we understand that, we will not worship and bow our knee to Jesus Christ. We understand. We have to understand we're broken people. We're sinful. <laughs> have you read the Old Testament lately? <laughs> we're in Judges where it's just starting. And oh my gosh, just in Judges. 
I mean, over and over and over again, they rebel against God. And then God delivers them again. And it goes on and on and on for 1,500 years. God deemed it necessary that we understand the depth of our depravity, of our sinfulness, so that we might enter the joy, the gladness of our salvation. A second thing he says, another answer is surely this. That is the way God is finally proving, and listen to this, so profound. That is the way God is finally proving to mankind that any attempt on man's own part to save himself is futile. We can't save ourselves. That's what Peter just taught us in this passage, profoundly, powerfully. The Jews couldn't keep the law. He couldn't keep the law. Nobody could keep the law. Only Jesus kept the law. And so here we are, and, and this picture of this yoke that, that the, uh, these uh, Jews from Jerusalem were trying to put on the Gentiles uh, was called a yoke, a burdensome yoke. And if, if that doesn't bring some, some thoughts to mind, before we go there, just, just remember that in ancient Israel, uh, they would say when a, when a Gentile came into Judaism, he took upon himself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. And it was a heavy, heavy yoke. That's why Jesus said what he said to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus alone was sinless, and he made that light yoke available to us through faith, and that's the joy and the wonder and the beauty of the gospel that we want to we proclaim. We, we want to take this message to this city. There are people in Greeley, Colorado, many, many people in Greeley, Colorado, that are still trying to please God in the way they live. Moralism, law-keeping, doing worshipful things, doing things they think will gain the favor of God. They need the gospel. They need to know they're broken and sinful and without hope apart from Jesus Christ. And this passage brings that to us. It's so powerful the way he says it. No, it's not through the law. We believe that <laughs> this is so profound. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will be. Salvation for us Jews is the same as salvation for the you Gentiles. It isn't different for anyone. It makes no difference what your ethnicity is, your background, your country of origin. The gospel is here for all men who believe, who understand their sinfulness and come to faith. These truths are so powerful. It, it, it so convicted the assembly that they fell silent. The, the argument and debate was over. And there's almost, some, there's almost some humor in that because we always like to argue and debate theological things and make much of little stuff. But they were so profoundly convicted by the work of God and, and the testimony of Peter that they were silent. And it gave opportunity for uh, Barnabas and Paul to state that exactly the same thing happened through them as happened to Peter. They went out, remember? They went out on the first missionary journey to exclusively Gentile people, and they preached the gospel 
that sinners need Jesus. And many came to faith, and God showed his favor on that and drew them to faith. And, and there were many, uh, many amazing things that happened. God had acted. Many were saved, and they gave testimony to that. God had endorsed their work by miraculous signs and wonders. And God will endorse our work as we go out with faith into this arena of seeking to share this amazing gospel with people around us. But we're not done yet. That's not enough evidence yet. There's one more thing that we've got to look at. And so James, the brother of Jesus, stands up. In verse 13, we read these words, and you're going to have to listen to some of this closely. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, and he uses his Jewish name for Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with, and with this, the words of, listen, the prophets agree. This is a really big deal. This isn't something new, unheard of. This is something foretold by the prophets of old. And he's going to quote for us Amos to substantiate that. But what, what we've seen is Peter's testimony of God working through him and, and, and around him, bringing people to himself through God's power, the work of the Spirit. And, and then Peter gives testimony that the law can't save anybody. <laughs> Didn't save a Jew, can't save Gentiles. So that's not the answer. And then James comes along and says, all of this that Peter's been teaching, I agree with. And so do the prophets. This is a big thing. He took it from experience to the Word of God. So listen to the rest of the passage. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, verse 16, I will return. And this is the prophet speaking. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind will seek the Lord. The remnant of mankind and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. This is inclusive, and this is in the prophets of old, so powerful. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that you should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So we see is, is James standing in this midst of all these leaders, the apostles, the leaders in Jerusalem, and the whole congregation, and he's now telling them everything that Peter said is absolutely correct. God was at work. God drawing Gentiles to himself. The truth of the uh, inability of not just the Jew, but anybody else to keep the law is just as true. And then he goes on to say, and let's tie this all to the Scripture. The prophets proclaim that God would do a work like this. God would bring a remnant of mankind out of the Gentiles to the Lord. So this is what's unfolded here. And he, uh, he uses terminology that would be incredibly powerful among Jews. He says uh, to them <clears throat> that God first visited the Gentiles. That, that's, a, that's a phraseology that the Jew would, would view as divine intervention by God. 
And then he goes on to say that they would become a people for his name. Who were the Jews? They were a people for the name of God. And now James is saying the Gentiles will be what? A people as well for his name. So what we see here is, is uh, James bringing to conclusion the power of all this uh, as being a prophetic truth that has been uh, realized before them in their presence as Peter's gone out and as Barnabas and Paul have gone out, the working of God in all of this. And so the simple conclusion of the leadership and the people was that we shouldn't put any burden longer than this on the Gentiles. The gospel's simple. Because of our sin, we simply need to believe and put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Trust Him to pay the penalty that we can't pay. Trust Him to bear the sin we can't bear because we can't. And so the essence of the gospel is made clear. Stop troubling the Gentiles. He does give a few things, and this, I believe, really relates to the fellowship between Jewish believers and uh, Gentile believers. You shouldn't do things like commit sexual immorality. You shouldn't eat food offered to idols. And, and this was more to, to get past uh, some of the uh, um, issues, the scruples of, of the Jews. And, and I think what he says is the mission to the Jews is dependent on this and to Gentiles as well because they always went to the Jews first. Don't go offend the Jews when you go out with the, with the gospel. Go out and, and have good fellowship with them. Don't offend them. Don't do anything to discredit your testimony and your faith before them. So it's about fellowship. And so with all this, it wraps up with uh, about uh, 26 verses or so that really is a, a kind of a description of how, it, uh, how, how they were sent out and, and how they dispersed this message. So let me read this. I've just got a couple comments, and then we'll wrap up. Then it seemed good to the apostles, listen to this, the apostles and the elders with the whole church, everybody there, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men from among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, and I love this, the brothers in Jerusalem are writing to the brothers in Antioch. Isn't that precious? <laughs> and he says, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words upsetting your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord. They've made a decision, the apostles, the leaders, and, and the church, and even the dissenting fraction in the church, all came to an agreement on this. We've all come to a decision, one accord, to choose men and send them to you, our beloved Barnabas, and send them with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth, for it, is, for it has seemed good. And listen, it's God sending this message, not James or Peter or anyone else. He says, for it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from these things I've just mentioned, the sexual immorality, eating food offered to idols, etc., etc. And then down in verse uh, 30, it says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, there was rejoicing. Can you imagine? 
uh, these people in Antioch probably were kind of sitting and waiting, what's going to happen? Are they going to accept us? What's, what's going to be the result of all of this controversy and dissension between us? And now they hear nothing. The gospel's been uh, kept purely and clearly uh, focused on faith in Jesus Christ. So there's rejoicing and encouragement. In Judas and Silas, it says they themselves were prophets engaged, or excuse me, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace to the, by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. So we see is, is the resolution of this by the sending of these four men with this letter and message to clarify for one time and for all times the simple gospel that salvation. How is a man saved? By belief in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he paid the penalty for your sin, my sin, that my sin couldn't be covered or dealt with in any other way, only in Jesus Christ. He's the only one capable of paying my penalty, and he's done that. And it's belief and faith in all of that. And the, the result of all this was unity within the church and upholding the gospel message as sacred. And evangelism, they could go out into the world with this message and proclaim it as far as God would lead them. And new churches would be raised up. Jason mentioned last week all of this mission brought to us the, the epistles in the New Testament because these are the stories and the challenges of new churches that are being birthed by the gospel. All of this, the result of this Jerusalem Council clarifying the essence and the truth of the gospel through Peter's words, through the testimony that Jews couldn't keep the law, why should we impose it on anyone else, and by the testimony that this was all foretold in the Word of God. And so all of that lays before us. So what, what are the takeaways? Just want to spend a couple minutes before we share the Lord's table and celebrate in all joy uh, what we have in this gospel. First off, understand the gospel is the simple, profound truth that we're sinners. If you don't believe it, read everything in the Old Testament up until Jesus came. There's 1,500 years of sinful human beings rebelling against, disobeying, fighting with, angrily discrediting God. And these are religious Israelites who should have known better. Uh, they were the people of God, and yet they fell into idolatry. They fell into all kinds of sin, as, as we would. They're just a picture of me. I don't know about you, but they're a picture of me. And I'm assuming, in reality, they're a picture of every one of us. But the gospel is so pure, and I can't say it better than Jesus said it in John 6, 48. The religious leaders of his day, some of these people that still were confused about all this, they came to Jesus, and they said to him in, in John 6, 28 and 29, what must we do to do the works of God? Notice their words. What does God want us to do for him? What works does he want us to accomplish? And now let's look at, this is, this is a profound answer. This is from the mouth of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. He says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Paul said it in another way at the end of Galatians, the letter that tackles this whole issue as it began to creep back into the church. He says in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for righteousness, if righteousness could be obtained by the law, Jesus Christ died for nothing. 
If you can be saved by works, by religious duties, by giving, by attending church, by doing anything for the church in the form of works, you've nullified. If that's the way we're saved, we've nullified the work of Christ. He didn't need to die. God made a mistake, but we know all of that's not correct. I had to think of, of a good way to leave this with you, so I, uh, if you put up the, the slide of world religions, uh, I'm, I'm going to read these real quickly, and then there's one truth I want you to glean out of this. Mormonism, founded in 1830 by Joseph Smith. Islam, founded about A.D. 610 by Muhammad. Jehovah Witnesses, founded in 1879 by Charles Taze Russell. Buddhism, founded by Buddha, about 525 B.C. Unification Church, founded by, in 1954 by Sun Yun Moon. Christian Scientists, founded in 1875 by Mary Baker Eddy. Scientology, founded in 1954 by L. Ron Hubbard. What is the one consistent thing on that screen among the pretty prominent world religions? What? All founded by people. Every one of them. Do you notice the difference between that and what we've, where we've just been? Yeah, absolutely. It's all the work of God bringing and drawing people to himself through the finished perfect work of the Lord Jesus. And I want us to remember, too, that this isn't just a casual message. The eternal destiny and fate of all mankind rest on their acceptance or rejection of this message. Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 says this, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that he puts that in there? Listen to it again. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. I'm here to remind myself and all of us tonight that every person on this planet faces that question about faith in Jesus Christ. Do they believe or not believe? And that is the fate of those who don't believe. How do we know somebody's genuinely saved? How do we find that out? Over the years, I've found a couple questions these came out of a book by Dr. James Kennedy called Evangelism Explosion. And we use these regularly. In fact, on later this week, this physician we've been talking with you about over in Windsor, we will meet with him for the fifth time reading John's Gospel, and we're in chapter 3. Guess what's in chapter 3? It's when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks about faith. Well, guess what? Our friend in Windsor is going to hear. He's going to be asked these questions. He's contemplating what sin is. And the first question is simply this. If you were to die tonight and stood before Jesus and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer him? And the second question, have you come to a place where you know for sure that if you were to die tonight, you'd go to be with Jesus? You would go to heaven? Those are profound questions and the answer for those I think are profoundly clear. I could ask you to write those out on a sheet of paper and answer them. Uh, but we're going to share the Lord's table tonight in conclusion to our time together. And, and I want to be sure that you understand the answer to those questions 
I hope is clear from this passage, this text. What would I say to Jesus if I stood before him tonight, if I died between here and my house one mile away? I would say, Jesus, I have completely and totally entrusted my life, my eternal destiny, because of my sinfulness to the sufficiency of your work on the cross for me. You died that I might live. You suffered that I might rejoice. It's your death on the cross that delivers me. Some form or version of that would be the appropriate answer, I, I believe. Do I have confidence that if I were to die tonight, I'd go be with him? I do. My prayer is that every one of you in this room could answer those questions in that same way. And so take a few moments and just contemplate that before the Father. Maybe say those questions to yourself again. Please leave them on the screen for a bit and make sure that you understand clearly what they mean and how you would respond. And then in a few moments when you're ready, come and uh, partake of the bread and the cup. There's gluten-free bread in the back. There's matzah here in the front. There's both the sealed uh, wafer and uh, grape juice here and then uh, the cup here. So as the Lord leads, and I'll come up, come up at the end and we'll all take partake together. Thank you.